0: Thank you so much, Maureen, for being with us. Maureen Garcia is instructor of English at Nyack College, uh, the Manhattan campus in New York City. And I found Maureen because my friend John McCollum had tweeted an article that you wrote, Maureen, called How to Spot Sexual Abuse in Your Church. And I Mm -hmm. loved it. And I then shared it myself. And I reached out to you saying, you know, it was one of the best articles I'd read on the topic. And to be honest, I'm a pretty tough critic when it comes to these things. (laughs) So I really, I really wanted Mary and I's listening audience, you know, to hear some of the things that you have to say, some of the things that you've written. But first of all, I think, Mary, I think you would agree. We would just be honored if you would share more in your story with us. Yeah. Just to kind of start off, I know like sharing stories is some of the most powerful ways we can even talk about this topic. And Yeah. yeah, if you'd be willing to just share a little bit of your background and your experience. I guess I would probably
1: start with after about 10 years of being married to a Christian man, um, one of my relatives, who at the time was a 12 year old girl, uh, sat me down at my kitchen table and told me that my husband had been sexually abusing her for probably about three years. So that's how I started uh, thinking about these things and getting interested in them. And there's like a whole story after that. Of course, I. Uh, I believed her. I had no reason not to believe her. Um, and when I confronted him, he admitted what she was able to bring herself to speak about, but nothing more. Okay. And, of course, she was, you know, young and had a limited vocabulary for these things, and there's so much uh, shame and embarrassment that, uh, like, we know that more stuff happened, but we don't know exactly what. So that started a whole thing where and I've written about this where I had a couple of pastors and one of them talked with me and and reassured me and gave me some options, told me what we were legally responsible to do. And then he went with another pastor and convinced my husband at the time to uh, turn himself in. And so um, that's what he did. And and I've been, you know, I've been separated from that man and divorced from him since since then. But that started me on a... a, um, I guess, kind of, I didn't ever want to not see this happening again. I, I couldn't understand, how did I miss this? What kind of signs did
2: um, mm-hmm. I
1: overlook? Right. Um, you know, how could you live with someone for that mm-hmm. many years and not know that mm-hmm. they're capable of this and mm-hmm. that they're doing this? And, and some of the types of uh, behaviors that he did were so bizarre that it wouldn't even occur to me that someone would, would do this to abuse somebody. Um, and one of the things which we just recently realized with the whole Larry Nasser, you know, I don't even know, horror,
3: I guess yeah, is the right. proper word for it. I think it's proper, that, yeah.
1: Yeah. Ab- abusive people can abuse even when um, people are in the room. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that, uh, you know, I had a lot of shame and guilt mm. about. Like, how could, if I get up to go to the bathroom or if I go to make a cup of tea um, and he's in another room with the children, he could be you know, I mean, he would do things when I was 10 feet away. And then apparently there were times when I would turn my back in one room and he would, he would do something bizarre or abusive just for the couple of seconds that I turned around.
2: Right. Um. Um,
1: and that's something that people don't, don't seem to realize. But anyway, I just didn't ever want this to happen again. And, um, and that's not how life works and that's not how God has orchestrated my life. So it has happened again to a number of people since then. And, um, uh-huh. i it, you know, my daughters and their friends would always come and, and tell us about stuff that was going on with them and sexual harassment that they've experienced or abusive experience. So it's like my my great desire would be to stop this from ever happening again. Um, but it doesn't seem that that's where God puts me most of the time. What seems to happen is, People will come to me and tell me after the fact that this has happened, and now I know enough um, well, this is what you should do, this is how we deal with this, this is how you begin healing, mm-hmm. um, you know this is what we do legally, but it's it's heartbreaking that it just keeps happening. And right. I know so many people that this has happened to, and um, so at some point, I started writing because I thought maybe if I can explain to people what I know uh, about predators from having lived yeah. with one and also from I am I was in close relationship with a number of other sexual offenders,
2: okay. um,
1: which I didn't know at the time. Wow. Were. So since I've been in such close relationship with these kind of people, maybe if I start um, talking about things they do or patterns that they have or um, that that could actually help people to prevent this
0: in yeah. the first place. I, th- I definitely would agree with that because we often just are so trusting of people that are close to us. And those are the ones that are often doing the abusing. So if we can be trusting of people to a certain degree, that we are also educated on the signs of grooming traits of perpetrators then we can be a little bit more confident in who we're trusting and who we're not and who we're keeping an eye Mm -hmm. on around our kids, you know, a little bit more or something like that. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think you've done an amazing job um, articulating the grooming process of an abuser. I think it's been really spot on in your writings. And I wondered if you would be willing to share a little bit about that. I think that that's really helpful for people to be able to paint a picture of what that grooming process might look like. So
1: some of what I know about this, obviously, is, is from my personal experience, mm-hmm. uh, having been groomed and, and having <laughs> known a lot of predators that do grooming. Yeah. Uh, but also a lot of my research comes from um, Anna C. Salter, who's an expert in this field. Yeah. And there's a number of other uh, writers as well that, that talk about grooming and, you know, how that looks. But my experience is that uh, usually when someone is, is grooming, they're, uh, they're usually very likable They have to be, because otherwise they don't have access to whoever they want to abuse. And I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that when they first start uh, a relationship with someone that they're automatically just starting a relationship in order to groom someone. Mm -hmm. Some abusers do that, but some of them are just starting relationships and then see opportunities and from that begin to more consciously groom Mm So part of the difficulty that Anna Salter talks about, and my own experience, is that um, most of the abusers I know uh, were and are uh, Christians, specifically evangelical Christians. Yeah. Um, And she talks about how some of the people that she interviewed who uh, were in prison for having done abuse, that they talk about Christians are uniquely gullible, Mm -hmm. uh, because we want to see the best in everybody, Mm -hmm. and we want to give people... um, you know the opportunity to be um, the good person that that we uh, we assume that mm-hmm. that they're becoming that God created them to be. Right.
0: Even after so, we find out that they've abused, yes. sometimes you know the yeah. church two movement is just so sad to me of how even mm-hmm. even when evangelicals know about the abuse, so often they still want to paint the picture of well, he's still a good guy. Oh, yes. don't even get mm-hmm. me started. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's infuriating it um,
1: how, I mean, and the Church Too, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, yes. um, those are, they're fantastic, and, and they are heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but my experience has been since June 2000, when I first started thinking about these things, is that this is happening all the time, but no one's talking about it. Right. So for me, as much as it's heartbreaking, and it, it does weigh heavily on me, mm-hmm. um, I'm also really excited about it because yes. uh, people are talking and something has shifted in our cultural environment. And I don't know what exactly it is, but something has shifted because people are talking about it mm-hmm. and now they're being believed.
2: Exactly,
1: And, and consequences are actually happening yeah. for some of these people. Whereas mm-hmm. 10, 20 years ago, it, it was not even like two, no. three years ago, you know, when Bill Cosby's first accusers came out, yeah, um, people were really, they couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, You made a great point, the whole... The other thing besides, you know, how do we prevent this? Because that's the thing I would love to do most. The other thing that freaks me out is not so much... I expect abusive people to behave abusively. But Mm -hmm. it's it's the good people who are well-intentioned, who support the abusers... Um, that are more of the problem to me. So the problem Mm -hmm. is the abuse. And then the problem behind the problem is how people support them. Yeah. Um,
0: Right. Silence. Silence will only perpetuate the problem.
1: Yes, absolutely. So going back to the whole grooming thing, abusers don't just groom their victims. They groom their whole community.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And so if you have an abuser who has a platform, someone who's a pastor, Mm
3: -hmm. um,
1: someone who sells books, someone who's charismatic and likable, Um, or even if they're not likable, but um, they're charismatic and they're controversial, uh, their platform gives them the opportunity to begin to groom their entire community. And the purpose of grooming is really simple. They want to make sure that they build a relationship with the child where the child trusts them, um, because then when they begin to abuse, the child isn't aware that abuse is happening. Mm -hmm. So it silences them. And then the other problem is grooming makes the child think that they are complicit in the act. So they're more likely to keep silent Mm -hmm. because it's not just, I'm going and telling on someone who did something wrong.
3: Mm -hmm. It's
1: I'm, I'm going and telling on, on something that happened that I may or may not have felt pleasure for that I think that I'm responsible for.
0: Right. Um, I've seen a lot of abusers use the term we. So if we are doing this thing, then we are both (laughs) at fault. So a child will not want to tell because they feel Mm -hmm. like the we pronoun is, is used so often to sort of make the child part of the process, part of the abuse or experience.
1: Yep. Absolutely. So with the grooming of a community, it, it becomes the goal is to gain their trust so that if the child does tell, people believe them and not the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's what you see with um, mm-hmm. people who, who are supportive of, um, well, let me see who's in the news nowadays, Andy Savage. and. Um, right. You know, and yes, we, very we them, true.
0: And how often those abusers, I feel like they're picking out oftentimes a female who may be a troubled youth. And so yes. already their testimony is not going to be as believable as this charismatic, responsible, well-known adult in the community.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes what happens is if you have somebody who's being abused, um, they begin to uh, manifest symptoms of the abuse, and then the abuser relies on that as well. Mm-hmm. So they they do. Abusers have a phenomenal ability to. Um, See our vulnerabilities. I mean, I've, this has happened to me so many times in my life because I'm I'm also a survivor of of an mm-hmm. sexual assault and abuse. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll meet people sometimes, and um, sometimes people who are, I think have the potential or might be abusers will immediately be able to hone in on what they think my vulnerabilities are.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and when I was younger, you don't realize that you're being manipulated that way or, or kind of pulled in. Um, but, after much you know tons of therapy and prayer and <laughs> healing yeah. um you know, and learning how not to second guess yourself, you can start to to see, oh, this person is um you know for i don't know how they know, but they know um when we when we have these wounds and they they latch onto that and they try to take advantage of it.
0: What other kinds of traits of an abuser have you? sort of seen pop up, I think specifically in the Christian environment that maybe parents listening could watch out for?
1: So the number one thing that I would always look for in in all your relationships is whether or not this person can accept boundaries.
3: So mm-hmm. dr.
1: Cloud and dr Townsend um, two christian psychologists mm-hmm. they they write um, they have a bunch of books about boundaries mm-hmm. and safe people. Their Safe People book is a great book it 's really small,
3: mm-hmm. but it
1: gives you a really good idea of you know what a safe person looks like
3: mm-hmm. and it also
1: gives you a really good good idea of um, how you 're not being safe for yourself mm-hmm. if if that 's happening okay. um, and how you can become a safer person for
3: mm-hmm. other
1: people and for yourself. From reading some of their stuff and from reading other research and also from my own experiences, uh, abuses have a really hard time with boundaries. Mm-hmm. If you tell them no about something little, mm-hmm. they usually can't abide it because mm-hmm. they have such a sense of entitlement. So that's one of the things that I look for. It's kind of like this if I can't trust that you're going to respect when I say a little no, then there's no way I'm letting you around children because I can't trust that you're going to respect a bigger no.
0: Right. And I think the. The other piece that I really like that you wrote about is the victim stance. Could you talk a little bit about that? So victim stancing is a concept
1: that I, I learned about. I learned the word from um, Anna Salter and other researchers like her. And basically, uh, and you see this with very clearly with Larry Nasser. So when, these, when the judge allowed these women um, to come forward and to speak their experiences,
2: yeah. and he
1: was forced to sit through it, he couldn't abide it, so yeah. he wrote this letter of complaint to the court. And so what I loved about the judge was that she refused to, to read it. She wouldn't give him the platform anymore right. because, um, you know, to do so potentially can re-victimize, re-traumatize, mm-hmm. trigger um but he basically made it sound like he was the victim of the judge, the courts, and all these women who insisted on telling him uh, what he had done to them and how it had affected them.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Didn't um, she do such a standpoint. great job handling both yeah. sides? She did
1: such a great job. She was just, I mean, church leaders can learn so much from what she did. She I really, think so too. it was amazing. She gave the victims a platform, she silenced the abuser, she limited his interactions. It was so great. She mm-hmm. was just, I mean, she's wonderful. Mm. But you see the victims dancing with him. And basically, it's yeah. this idea that I'm the victim. Um, the real victims are not victims. They're victimizing me. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, there's also a lot of blame shifting that kind of goes on there. Mm. So, so those are things that that I would look for, and the victim-stancing, especially in Christian environments, is problematic, because again, this goes back to we want to believe the best in people. So when someone is caught or somebody is exposed as being abusive, um, when they victim-stance, what they're doing is they're, they're tapping into our empathy mm-hmm. and trying to hook us. Once they have our empathy, um, then they can uh, basically just kind of grandstand and talk about how horrible everything is for them and um you know and the focus shifts from whoever the victims are the primary victims and the the family of the victims Mm -hmm. um and it shifts to them
3: yeah
1: so one of the things that we need to learn as a church is that the healthiest thing if you want to help somebody who's an abuser is to withhold your compassion from them because it's not going to help them get any better.
3: Mm. And
1: it's actually uh, re-victimizing for anyone who's been victimized. Uh, We have to learn how to focus all our compassion on the victims and their families and the family of the abuser because that's also, um, they can get lost in the shuffle too.
0: I can remember back when I first broke my silence at 14 and my stepfather Mm -hmm. was interviewed by the detectives. They shared with my mom and I how my stepfather came in there Brought mm-hmm. our dog with him, <laughs> set yeah. it on his lap, and was petting it profusely during the interview. And was talking to them about how he never smoked or drank in his life, and he listened to Rush yep. Limbaugh. Yeah, <laughs> like mm-hmm. somehow yeah. this was a way of getting their sympathy for what he was yeah. going through, and of course mm-hmm. denied everything that he had done. But it just was—it's was just a reminder of these kinds of tricks that they try to pull.
1: Yeah, and and they work. Um, with so many people with with me when my ex-husband now when he went to turn himself in I got a phone call a couple of hours later from the detective he turned himself into
2: mm.
1: and the detective began to, to talk to me and he said I never do this but I just wanted to tell you that this man is really broken he's been crying mm. um, you know and, and would you consider not separating from him and I was mm. stunned
3: wow wow
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah so I asked him, I said, uh, you know, if this was your wife and she had done this to one of your children or to one of your nieces or nephews, you know, what would you do? And he took a minute and he said, I don't know, ma'am. I don't know. And I said, OK, that's.
4: <laughs> and it's almost like know. until you're in my shoes, zip your lips because you can't <laughs> yeah. comment on that then. <laughs>
1: i couldn't believe it i was i i it was, and and that was just the beginning because I, I realized this happens over and over a year after yeah. this um relative disclosed um another relative disclosed about a different person that we know mm. a very good friend of mine and i had met when i was about 14 years old um had been abusing one of my daughters and so my daughter oh, my uh, eventually disclosed and mm. um I went I went to his house with a friend, and I said, we, we know what you've been doing, and you, you need to turn yourself in, or I'm going to leave here and go straight to the police department and turn you in. And so he came with me, we went to the police department, and he tried to turn himself in. He walked up to the desk, I was with him, and he said his name,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: that, that he was a child molester, wow. and that he was trying to turn himself in, and they they were going to send him home. They told him you know, sir, it's kind of late tonight. Why don't you go home and we'll send some police to your house tomorrow?
2: Stop.
3: <laughs> Seriously. No. And
1: so this was happening and I'm, again, it was so surreal. Mm. It's like being in some kind of strange nightmare. So I, I I demanded to see whoever the supervisor was, whatever sergeant they had around. And so they got for me, the sergeant, and I said, this man just turned himself in for molesting my daughter. You will arrest him. If you don't, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> So they arrested him. Mm-hmm. He did. But if I hadn't have been there, or if I hadn't experienced this before, they, yeah. they wouldn't have kept him there. Because being that this was the second time I was speaking to police about this whole kind of thing, I, I had a much better awareness of how this
0: worked. And- but for how many people that don't have a clue on what to do when they hear this, you know? I mean, luckily you did. And I'm just so glad that you're speaking out about this now and educating the next. You know, person who has to go through this, unfortunately, and
1: it's such a horrible thing to go through because you're in shock when you know, and you're trying to, you're trying to make sure that whoever was victimized is safe, and whatever other children or teenagers may be around are also safe, and you're trying to process all your own stuff at the same time, and then you know, to have to deal with um, so much resistance from authorities and um, from whatever, from police or, yeah. or your church, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's really horrible. It's, it's the kind of situation where you need as much support as you can possibly get. And I was blessed that I had family and friends that were uh, much more supportive. Um, but it was also, it was just, it was such a shock how so many people in the church reacted and how um, so many police reacted. Yeah, it was just horrible. Now it doesn't shock me at all. Now I expect it.
4: Isn't that sad that you expect that?
1: Yes.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I just want to
4: applaud you, too, because I think that's where so many people break under the pressure. And for you to just (laughs) take charge and go after it and not give up for those victims just to be that voice and that um, that strong person for them, that is crucial and will change their lives forever. So thank you for doing that for them.
1: It doesn't feel so heroic when it's happening. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Oh,
4: I'm
2: sure.
1: (laughs) So but this also talks about the whole grooming thing so the person that was turning himself in uh at the time was in his 70s and he's uh maybe he was about he's since passed away but he was about maybe five foot two um and he was just a cute little old man
3: um
1: a cute little christian old man who was Mm -hmm. holding his bible and so when he went to turn himself in um you know they took one look at him and they thought oh you know what harm can this guy do and um, th- what they don't realize is he could shatter lives. That's, yeah. that's what harm this guy and can do. And he did.
0: And that just kind of leads me to the question of, you know, how do you spot sexual abuse in a church? So we have all these traits, but we still have people that we're trusting. You know, what What do you do with that? What If we have pastors listening or, or leaders in the church, what would you tell them?
1: Um, again, always the boundary stuff. Somebody who has a sense of entitlement. Here's the problem. Once somebody starts to groom uh, a victim uh, as opposed to an entire community, like once they focus in and they're grooming victims, Mm -hmm. um, the abuse has already started. Whether or not there's been any legal definition of abuse that's occurred, grooming the process itself is abusive because what's happening is there's a relationship of trust being built Mm -hmm. that is for the purpose of betraying it.
0: That's really mm-hmm. good. I think that's not something we often hear, and that's mm-hmm. so very true. Yeah. you're it already ab- we're everything. already seeing an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening
1: is that when the person is, is doing the grooming, they're trying to um, evaluate whether or not the, the victim has the you know potential to tell. Yeah. Um, and um, but also they're setting up scenarios. Um, to build trust and to make the victim feel complicit even before abuse happens. Mm -hmm. So um, anybody who wants to keep secrets is automatically um, not a safe person.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Anybody who has a problem with uh, boundaries or hearing the word, no, they're not a safe person. Mm -hmm. So the difficulty in, in churches, you can't just run around saying, Oh, that person is definitely an abuser. or That one is.
3: Mm -hmm. But what
1: we can say is these are some traits that are not safe. Mm-hmm. And because they're, they're not safe, um, you know, we're not going to put this person in a position where they have access to potential victims.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and if it's a church environment, especially if it's someone who's a leader or who has a platform, and there are not safe traits popping up like boundary violations or, or like um, secret keeping, um, a lack of transparency, then that's for the other leaders to um, hold them accountable for. And how they respond to being held accountable will give you a better idea of of how much potential they have for abuse.
2: Absolutely.
1: Cannot stand being held accountable.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and we have so many institutions that are fixed on, you know, strong power of leadership, oftentimes male dominance in the church. And I think that's only leading. I mean, those are just red flags to me that this is breeding ground for abuse.
1: Well, they are. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's just so much there. When you say that, we could, we could talk for so long about so much stuff with that. But, um, again, church leaders can learn from the judge in Larry Nassar's case because what she did was she gave females a, a platform. Um, and this is one of the things that churches can do that will help prevent abuse from happening in their church. If you give victims a platform it does a number of things all at once. It tells the community victims will be, will be believed, mm. and we will support them. Yeah. It also tells potential abusers. Um,
0: <laughs> they're not safe here anymore. <laughs> that's it. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they're not safe. So when we talk about how the church can help, I mean, that that's obviously one big way. How has the mm-hmm. church helped your situation?
1: Well, first, the uh, pastor that spoke with me when— uh, when I first heard the disclosure and I, I confronted my husband, that pa- the pastor at my church, who spoke with me, was great because he wasn't shaming. He didn't, he didn't victim blame. He knew exactly what was legally required to us and was able to articulate that. But even in the midst of that, he gave me options, which is another thing that's very important when you're dealing with victims of abuse, um, either the primary ones or the secondary ones. Abuse takes away your choice and makes you feel powerless and helpless. Yeah. So um, what this pastor did was he gave me choices. He said, okay, so we have to turn him in. How we turn him in, we're going to do what's most comfortable for you. And so he basically said, "Um, we can go with you and confront him and tell him to turn himself in. We can go straight to the police and report him and they'll go pick him up. Or um, I can go with somebody else from the church and we can go confront him. And then he asked me, um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, at the time I was too... Uh, well, to be honest, I was I was terrified of mm-hmm. the man who was my husband at the time because um,
2: well, you didn't I had know thought him. he was
1: one person. Yeah, exactly. This is some completely different new. Um, it was like being in a horror movie. Um, so I told him, I said, "I I can't, I can't see him right now. It's it's you know." It's too frightening, and he said, "That's fine." He said, "What well, you're going to go home? you going to, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to go home. You're going to have some tea. We're going to go. We're going to confront him. We'll <laughs> call wow. you in a little while and let you know what happens." So, um, so he was great because, again, no victim blaming. Yeah. he didn't shame me at all. He knew legally what needed to be done. He gave me options. He was supportive. He prayed for me. He followed up with me. Great. Um, after that, he would call randomly just yeah. to see how I was doing.
2: Okay.
1: Um, and that's just one pastor. There's also another church that I was involved in that was my mother's church.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, he that pastor is amazing. He's actually, um, his name is Pete Scazzaro. He's the former pastor. We now have a new pastor there. But he's written a bunch of books on um, the emotionally healthy church, emotionally healthy spirituality. And um, so he understood uh, emotionally that this was, a huge, devastating thing that my whole world had kind of been shattered. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he talked to me a number of times, and uh, just the way he spoke with me and the way that he understood the, the the feelings of grief that I was having, which I didn't realize that that's what they were, but he basically said your whole life is everything that you, you know, it's all gone. Um, you have to start over, and so there's going to be a lot of grief, um, not just anger, not just feelings of betrayal and disgust, but also grief so that was helpful because uh, it allowed me to feel that because a lot of people didn't want me to feel grief they just wanted me to feel rage
0: or forgiveness
2: mm-hmm. oh <laughs> it goodness <was> to
0: extremes <laughs> yeah so their responses were very positive in that way in a way that other churches can learn to respond as far as coming alongside the victims even secondary yeah. victims believing them giving them space to tell their story and to understand their story you know not being yep. told what to do but you know, giving control to those victims as to here are your options and we're here to walk you through whichever one you choose. Those Mm -hmm. are all so good.
1: Yeah, it was definitely, they were blessings in the midst of this this horrific circumstance.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times um, the church has only hurt when it's come to these kinds of situations. So it's it's nice to hear a story where the church is doing the right thing and it can be an Mm -hmm. example for, for others that are out there. How have you seen the church be the most hurtful? What are the the main things that you've kind of heard in response to your own story or the other stories that are out there?
3: Well,
1: probably the first thing would be when they don't believe a victim. It's very difficult for victims to to talk about this in the first place, especially if they're children, because usually children don't even have a vocabulary to describe what's happening to them.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, again, like with my ex-husband, some of the types of abuse, that he would do were were very bizarre and so for a child to even try to articulate bizarre behaviors that they don't have a vocabulary for gets more complicated
3: um
1: and then with all the shame and everything so believing someone when they come forward is is absolutely crucial yeah and then so not believing is is just devastating you're telling them by not believing them that that they are powerless that their words aren't effective, that there's nothing that they can do, that they're stuck in this situation. You're often um, setting them up for the abuser to continue abusing them and and other abusers as well. And part of what we don't usually hear about when these kind of uh, things are uh, in the public or in the media is that once somebody has been groomed and is abused, they are far more susceptible to being abused afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, So most people who have experienced some kind of sexual assault or sexual abuse um, end up having multiple abusers throughout their life, um, unless there's uh, some kind of intervention uh, and a lot of healing and a lot of support. So to not believe them is basically setting them up to to be re-victimized over and over again. Um, So we need to believe victims, and then when they do come forward, we need to um, support them. And then the other thing was, uh, for me personally, it was all the, the victim blaming kind of stuff, or the or the blame shifting. So there was a number of times when um, people would suggest that it was my fault that uh, my husband had done these
4: things. Um, oh my! Yeah, so <sighs> that was no fun. <laughs> right? And, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't get how people make that connection, but again, that's mm-hmm. who?
1: Well, it's actually it seems to be very common. Um, in other areas in our culture, but in, in the church, we have so many different cultures, especially cultures that focused in on, on um, the purity movement kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, where females are, uh, it's implied that females are responsible for male sexual behavior. We're <laughs> the ones who are the gatekeepers. We're the ones who keep them from doing things. We're the mm-hmm. ones who help them contain and control
0: mm-hmm. their,
1: their sexual behavior because, you know, they're not supposed to be able to control that, which is insulting all around
0: it was said of my abuser that um, it probably happened to me. He probably did what he did to me because my mom hadn't put out enough in their marriage. Yeah. Very similar to um, sort of what you're saying here.
1: That's horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. That's
1: horrible. But yeah, I've heard similar things too. That, uh, you know, I must be cold. Yeah. Um, unaffectionate. You know. Right. Um, one person said frigid. I didn't know if that's a word we still use. <laughs>
0: oh, my
2: goodness, people.
1: Uh-huh. Oh.
0: Right, as if he can't be responsible for his own behaviors. Right. Mm-hmm. And as if
1: uh, this is the other thing that people don't realize. Sex and sexual abuse are not equal.
2: Mm-hmm. Those are two
1: different things. Right. Uh, so an abuser can be having plenty of sex,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but when they're behaving abusively and using sex as the weapon to do it, Uh, then that's that's a radically different, they're they're not connected the way people think that they're connected. Um, Just because it involves the word sex doesn't mean that it's the same thing as, you know, consensual adult sex.
0: Well, I'm just thinking about how so often people try to pin those things together and it has something to do with one another when we know that sexual abuse is all about power and control. It has nothing right. to do with sex. And so mm-hmm. whether that man is not getting it anywhere else or whether he's getting it all the time and is, in fact, addicted and getting it everywhere, every possible yep. place. Though right. Either way, it has no connection to the sexual abuse that he's committing.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And no one's responsible for his abuse but him. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting how so many adults and so many very bright individuals, especially in the church, just are not grasping that, and it's just leading to so many problems.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that I remember that was interesting was there was somebody that I uh, used to go to church with who her viewpoint was that I wasn't submissive enough, Mm
2: -hmm. and and
1: then I started to hear that in a number of places, that if I was submitting to my husband at the time, then this wouldn't have happened. Mm By that point, I knew that that was not true. And um, the pastor who um, who I first spoke with about this after it happened, his response was great because he basically said, "Don't accept that. That's not. Yeah. Know, that's a, <laughs> this is not your fault. Right. Not on you."
0: What are your thoughts then when it comes to you know what you're saying about purity culture? You know how how can we make a shift here that's safe and healthy and right? and hopeful? That's a large question. Yeah, and you don't have to answer that. I mean, I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if you had any thoughts there.
1: I do. Um, the difficulty with purity culture is that it, it it's reductionistic. It's reducing um, holistic human beings created in the image of God who are all unique and complex individuals to their sexuality. Um, and it, it tends to focus. Uh, so I think that the The impulse that began the movement was well-intentioned, but it quickly went off the rails because, um, the people who are, who were driving the conversation, um, themselves didn't have healthy, uh, healthy, godly understanding of, of what, um, sex is. Um, so, and you can see that like, um, years ago, the, the every man's battle book, um, if you read the book, there there are chapters and scenes where there's a conflation between uh, regular consensual sexual activity and things that are abusive or even criminal. And um, this uh, kind of, again, connecting regular sex with abusive sex mm. seems to be a very common thing uh, mm. in, in purity culture. And it's, it's just very problematic because... It's like with Andy Savage's uh, presentation of, you know, what he calls the incident that happened.
3: Right. For
1: him, it was um, it was a sexual sin, um, mm. but he doesn't think of it as anything that was unethical or criminal. So, um, you know, at some point they, they were – I was reading something where it said that, oh, well, he had told his wife before they got married, and so everything is fine. And it, that, purity culture-wise, is it's not that he sinned against – um, Jules, the woman that mm. he assaulted, it's that he sinned against his future wife and against God,
0: <laughs> oh, instead
1: of well, you assaulted a young girl who was, um, you know...
0: Under your authority.
1: Who, exactly. And even more so under your spiritual authority. What, what, you know, what kind of effects does that have on somebody's um, relationship with God, let alone themselves?
3: Absolutely. Their, you know, relationship yeah.
1: to themselves. Mm. So that's... There's all these um, problem... Areas within purity culture that are, I mean, it just it's much more harmful than it is positive. And I know a lot of people will disagree with me about that.
0: <laughs> but that's okay., no, I just think it's very complex. and you know, we can take in any kind of piece of theology and the church and a relationship, um, psychology, all of this stuff, you know, we can take positives from them, but there's also negatives. Nothing's perfect out there. And we need to grow because our world is a mess. And yes. I think that it's just good to be able to process these kinds of thoughts and look at the stories that are out there, what's hurting, what's helping. And, um, you know, it's a both and world. And I think yes. that we've got to really embrace that if we're going to make an impact in for the kingdom.
1: Yeah, that, that's perfect. It's a both and world. Yes. Mm-hmm. People want it to be a black and white world. And it's, it's just not. Um, and we have to learn to live in that that tension, that ambivalence. Um, you know, and it's not easy.
0: That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I have a tough question for you. Sure. <laughs> Do you think an abuser can be healed?
1: That is a tough question. I All get that right, a so, lot, and
0: it's really difficult for me. And I'm just wondering of you know, what, what your th- thoughts are. I know it's not an easy question, but just kind of off the cuff. So my thoughts
1: are informed by, uh, again, research by people like Anna Salter and also Lundy um, Bancroft who works, uh, or worked with domestic uh, abusers and their victims. Uh, and there's a number of statistics. Statistically, it's very low for them to be healed they have to be very motivated and they um like self-motivated and they have to be willing to to learn how to empathize with their victims which is a very difficult thing as you know again we saw with larry nasser he couldn't even abide listening to their stories um you know for a week after right however many decades of abuse one week of them just talking to him about what he did to them was too much for him uh-huh. so so they have to be willing to to learn how to empathize and they have to be willing to um, to be held accountable like every step of the way. The difficulty with using a word like healed or cured um, is I don't think that, that that's the type of um, situation that this is and it's it's very complex again to to be abusive is is not just um, It's not just one aspect of who you are. It's, again, because we're created in God's image, we're very complex creatures, and there's all these different elements to us. There's psychological, there's emotional, there's our spiritual formation, there's all kinds of, you know, stuff going on in there. And so for abusers, um, there's a lot of different things that that converge together for them to be able to um, commit the abuse in the first place and then justify it to themselves afterwards. Um, So for someone to become... I wouldn't say healed, but for someone to get healthier or safer, they have to learn how to um, recognize um, all these um, different elements that go into what make them abusive, which means that they would have to submit to somebody who's um, an expert. And one of the things they can't stand, again, because they're entitled, uh, is you know, being held accountable. So mm-hmm. they're not going to want anyone to tell them what they can and can't do. Um, which is symptomatic of their problem.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Um, so it is, I would say it's very difficult, and the statistics are very, very low. And, um, and that's difficult for me because as a Christian, um, you know, I, I want to believe that everybody uh, can be healed, and um, I want to believe that everybody has some great redemption story, um, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also know, you know, I've had family members die of cancer. I've had other family members die of other things, and it didn't matter how much we prayed or how much they went to specialists. Um, You know, there's something about us as human beings that, you know, we're mortal, and this this stuff, um, it happens. I mean, let me me put it this way. Um, If you're a victim and... um, you have somebody who's abused you. You spend the rest of your life working through that stuff. Yep. Um, there's no point where I'm ever going to say I'm healed. I'll I'll tend to say things like I'm getting better.
3: Yeah. And then
1: there are, are um, you know, there are weeks like the week when Na- Larry Nassar was on TV the whole time. You know, mm-hmm. that that triggering. week I'm walking around. Yep. I'm triggered all the time when that stuff is going on. Um, and you have to, you know, you have to learn how to take care of yourself and do self-care. And
3: mm-hmm. um, I
1: was actually listening to one of your wonderful podcasts yesterday about that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, um, so if the victim who is, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to be victimized. It's much more complicated pulling together all the justifications and craziness that goes with being abusive. <laughs> so if the victim has to deal with this for the rest of their life, then what makes us think that an abuser can just snap their fingers and get healed or, or yeah. be better? Um, so I think it's very complex, but I would say that um, there's no such thing as healing or a cure. There is progressive, um, you know, getting healthier, getting safer, and, and you have to be very motivated to do that, and, and most abusers are nowhere near motivated to do that. So it is possible, but it's usually not probable. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And I'm with you about just putting an ED on the end of that word. I don't think any of us are truly healed until Jesus takes us home. So on mm-hmm. on the victim side or on the perpetrator side, I fully agree with your answer there. I think it's really well said. So thank mm-hmm. you for, for answering that. You're, you're welcome. Just to wrap this up, where do you think we are when it comes to You know, finding our voices and the church becoming the safe place. Where do you think we land? Do you think it's getting better? I agree with you that the Church 2 movement, the Me Too movement, it's completely excruciating to hear the stories, but we all know they're Mm -hmm. out there. So I'm grateful they're coming forward. My hope is that it's making change within the churches. It's waking leadership up, it's opening eyes, you know, Mm -hmm. it's giving victims their voices. do you think that, that we have hope for the church becoming safe for us, though?
1: Um, yes, uh, but part of the difficulty is also, I think we're in progress,
0: mm-hmm. right? <laughs>
1: so yeah. um, it is great that people are coming forward and they're being believed, but then you also have, um, you know, backlash, like with Andy Savage, people who want to um, support him and um, silence victims. So I think that what happens and what I see happening now um, and my, what my experience is whenever abuse is exposed is that there's, there's usually a polarization that happens. Um, you have the people who, who automatically get it and uh, want to support and protect victims or potential victims, mm-hmm. and then you have the people who um, just don't get it and, mm-hmm. and don't want to change and they don't want things to shift. Mm-hmm. And um, because what's happening in our, in our churches and our culture right now is um, so dramatic compared to how this stuff normally goes, um, that polarization is probably going to get um, greater um, for mm-hmm. now. But in the end, uh, that's that's what God will use it to, um, you know, weed out the unhealthy elements in churches that want that, and um, the people who don't want that will just get solidified in their um, views and their unhealth and, um, you know, And then at some point, something will happen that'll move them along. But um, for the churches and for the people who who want to learn about this stuff and get better, um, I mean, this is a great opportunity.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And, you know, I I feel hopeful. I I really do. I, I feel like the church is willing to listen, and, you know, most of them. And a lot of the top leaders, especially a lot of female leaders are really speaking up about this, where in the past, they, you know, the ones that had a voice, a public voice, it was on other topics. But now it seems like they're all kind of joining together. We're one voice on this issue of sexual abuse. And and that's, Mm -hmm. I think, a really positive thing for us moving forward.
1: It really is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I agree with you. I feel hopeful, too. But you know, the feeling comes and goes. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Definitely. The rage and then the calm and then joy. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, goodness, Maureen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your voice on this topic and just encourage you to continue writing. For those listening, please check out Maureen Garcia's articles online. They're wonderful and she can expand on a lot of the things that she talked about today um, through her writing. So thank you, Maureen. Thank you.
4: Bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the One Voice podcast so you don't miss any of our great topics or amazing guests. Joining us for our next podcast A survivor of the Columbine High School shooting, Crystal Woodman Miller. Don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.